Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film editor at Consequence of Sound and also the host of this particular program. If you are just joining us for the second episode, go back and watch the first episode, you silly. But if you're just getting here, this is the second episode out of a planned four of filmography Stanley Kubrick. We're dissecting the master's works on the eve of what would have been his 90th birthday. And as his films are returning to prominence, thanks to a number of re-releases, as well as the documentary film worker about Leon Vitale, Stanley Kubrick's right-hand man, who we'll get to in a later episode than this one. This week, we are talking about human warfare, and that's a completely non-ominous way to bring us in. So on that note, I'd like to introduce my co-host for this episode. I'm Spartacus. I'm also Spartacus. I too am Spartacus. Good. I'm glad we were all on the same page. But seriously, I am Clint Worthington. I'm a senior writer for Consequence of Sound, and I also am the co-host, along with Allison, of the podcast TV Party, which you can find weekly at uh, Consequence of Sound. I'm Allison Shoemaker. I am the TV editor and also a film writer for Consequence of Sound. I am also on the podcast TV Party, which you can find weekly at Consequence of Sound. Oh, that sounds neat. These are all productions of the Consequence Podcast Network. And this week, before we, first of all, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so excited to jump in into a series of bleak treatises about the human <laughs> war drive. I mean, these crowd pleasers? Yes. But before we begin, you can find us on Facebook at Filmography, a filmmaker's podcast. You can find me on Twitter at D Suzanne Mayer. You can find Consequence of Sound on Twitter at Consequence. And you can give us a rating on iTunes and or Podchaser. Please give us ratings. It helps more than you could possibly understand. And with that, we'll jump into the weekly topic, which again is human warfare. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about humanity and Kubrick and how the perception of him as a cold-hearted filmmaker is not entirely accurate. He is clinical, but also not in the entirely detached way that he's portrayed as, though there is certainly a detachment to, at the very least, his visual filmmaking. Now, that's really going to come into sharp relief when you talk about a series of films about Kubrick interpreting the human war drive, because in these films, you see a Kubrick that is once completely engaged with these topics, who is very deeply immersed in the messy, ugly, often brutally violent humanity of war, while also simultaneously being compelled to examine what pushes a person to that breach, what people are pushed to during and very much because of war, and perhaps most crucially, 
what shapes what a person is at the end of the war. And I think that point of the end of the war is especially crucial to some of the films we're touching on today, which will be 1957's Paths of Glory, 1960's Spartacus, 1964's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, and 1987's Full Metal Jacket. Now, the question I want to bring in today is I want us to think a little bit in the context of the time in which a number of these films are produced, because obviously three of them are relatively close together in their grouping, all released within a decade of one another, and then Full Metal Jacket as a bit of an outlier, coming very near the end of Kubrick's career as his penultimate feature. And especially when we're talking about a film industry in transition, we talked last week a little bit about the air, the Hayes Code era and some of Kubrick's early noir work. We're now getting into the more radical filmmaking of the 60s, which would birth the full-blown boom of the 70s. And I want to talk about how does Kubrick depict the violence, the politics, and the physicality of war? Nice, simple question to start us <laughs> off. Right. It's a real easy, yeah. Real layup. Um, I mean, it is fascinating sort of seeing how seeing the different ways in which he does it. I mean, like there's all kinds of different, not really all kinds of different tones, but uh, it sort of vacillates between, you know, these big epics like Spartacus and something as bleak and apocalyptic as I guess everything else. Forget what I said. But still, like it, it, you know, I think Kubrick is pretty unrelenting when it comes to showing the effect that war has on people. Um, he's not as much interested in the politics of the nation states that are involved in whatever, uh, you know, form really it's, it's more about how it affects the people in various, um, you know, in various states of the, the nation, whether uh, there's a big uh, undercurrent, especially once we get to paths of glory and Spartacus to a certain degree about the differences between like, you know, sort of an officer class, um, and the grunts on the ground and the effects that it has on them. And I think that's really something that he loves focusing on. Uh, and he's also, especially in Full Metal Jacket, really unrelenting in, in depicting violence. I mean, I don't think you could say that Kubrick is a pro-war filmmaker by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, you're going to see as a recurrent motif through all four of these movies an approach that varies from sardonic to outright nihilistic about his take on how war functions. Because what seems to interest Kubrick most is the machinations of war, which shouldn't be surprising given what we know of him as a filmmaker. He's interested in the backdoor conversations and the politics and the endless double dealings that engender war just as much as the act of war itself mm -hmm. in a lot of respects, especially in the 50s and 60s work. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is, um, except for Full Metal Jacket, this, well, I guess still Full Metal Jacket, but that was the tail end of it. They're all Cold War era movies, um, uh, Dr. Strangelove most especially. And so I think, um, you know, when you're looking at Paths of Glory and Spartacus, there's almost a reflection on World War II era um, fighting and the the horrors of that directly, but then, uh, then sort of delving into how guerrilla warfare works in full metal jacket with the, in, in, you know, which, which is a movie that I think more than most has really the benefit of hindsight, uh, where they were able to dig into, um, sort of the vagaries of the Vietnam war there. Yeah. I, um, totally see all that. And admittedly, I think that my perspective today might be sort of skewed because dear listener, you should know that we are recording this on the day, I guess the day after sort of once you take into time zones into account, mm -hmm. um, 
the Donald Trump Kim Jong Un yeah. summit, which I sure thought about a lot this morning in the context of preparing for this podcast, particularly with regard to Doctor Strangelove, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Because mm-hmm. uh, man, is that surreal! It's very nonsense. surreal. Um, but one of the things I was struck in revisiting all of these was how concerned Kubrick is with dignity. Either mm-hmm. um, the importance of dignity or the lack of dignity, being robbed of your dignity. And these films are very different. I mean, there are certainly connecting fibers and connecting themes, but that's something that crops up in all of them, um, often at really important moments. The dignity of being able to die in the manner of your choosing or to die standing up or um, to go out in a blaze of glory having done your job as ordered or, mm-hmm. God, any number of things, right? Right. Dying well, um, dying free. Mm-hmm. The, these things are all really important. And uh, it's really hard to connect the dots between a film like Dr. Strangelove <laughs> and a film like Paths of Glory. But when you sort of filter it through that, it's easy to see Kubrick tearing down these institutions mm-hmm. and um, human cruelties, senseless brutality, while still finding a way to value human life, especially for the people sort of at the bottom of the pyramid. And yet, as we'll touch on in some of these films, he very much simultaneously traffics in that brutality at times, even as he condemns it, which is an interesting contradiction that we're going to have to kind of pick apart, especially in the first half of our discussion here. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's a good way in to start talking about the films themselves, because if we want to move on from last week's episode with Kubrick making his way into the studio system and being put on an MGM and working with Kirk Douglas, that's going to begin with Paths of Glory. I apologize for not being entirely honest with you. I apologize for not revealing my true feelings. I apologize, sir, for not telling you sooner that you're a degenerate, sadistic old man. And you can go to hell before I apologize to you now or ever again. Yeah. Which is a stark jump up in the same way that last week we touched on how the progression between Killer's Kiss and The Killing was a leap forward for Kubrick in terms of filmmaking. The gap from The Killing to Paths of Glory, which again was only one year, and that is already another stratospheric leap for him and then funnily enough from this to spartacus he'll take yet another one but to focus on paths of glory this is very much a film of the studio system down to the palatial sets the endless attention to detail the very lived in feel of a lot of the visuals which really suits a film that in this case is about a world war one battle and it's loosely based on a true story and adapted from humphrey cobb's novel about four French soldiers who were tried for cowardice during a trench battle as the result of refusing to leave the trenches due to an impossible scenario. To charge forward would have been death. To remain in its own way would ultimately become death. I'm sorry for spoiling a (laughs) 60-year-old film, but if you're listening to this, you probably already know that this doesn't turn out particularly well for the French soldiers in question. Well, I think you can also tell from, like, minute one that they're totally going to die. Like, there's there are few instances, if any, in this film where you're like, maybe it's going to work out. Right. Like that, yeah. it's not there's there's not a great sense of hope pervading through Paths of Glory. And I think that's an interesting place to begin in talking about it. Yeah. Because this is 
a bleak vision of war and especially putting it against many of the films of the post World War one and two era, which there, I mean, it's not to say there weren't subversions. The best years of our lives, for instance, is a great example of a proto anti-war American film. But this is a stark film in that it really takes a look at the human element of war and specifically the disposability of the lower classes during wartime. Mm -hmm. And I think what's most remarkable about that is the way he depicts the officer class. I mean, right from the beginning, you, you see the difference in how those two groups of people live. Like you see them in this, you see the officers in these palatial rooms, just idly sitting, sipping tea while discussing how many people are going to die or they have to take the anthill. And then you immediately cut to the trenches where these people are living in far, um, far less, you know, grandiose conditions and um, seeing the interplay between those two is really, really fascinating. And I think um, it it arms the audience's sensibilities in a in a really good way for the rest of the film. Yeah, this is a real cummy pinko movie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Eat well, the I mean, rich. Right down to Kirk Douglas, because this was Kirk Douglas's jam. He was super into like me- liberal humanist message movies, uh, which is part of why he did Spartacus, too. And like he was really adamant. Like it was it was fascinating to read that uh, Kubrick's draft of the script had them live by the end. Like they, there was a last minute save and Kirk Douglas was adamant. He's like, no, that's not how it happens in the book. That's not what happened in real life. Cause this is based on a real thing. And um, yeah, we can't do it. So it's a rare case of like, man, good thing. Kirk Douglas overrode Stanley Kubrick's instincts there. <laughs> uh, Cause that would have been a real cop out, yeah. uh, especially given the tone of the rest of the movie. It's so it's so like relentlessly, beautifully bleak. Well, and we talked about that a little last week with Killer's Kiss, which is a grim film noir that ends with an asynchronously happy ending. This is quite the opposite, however, because Paths of Glory ends exactly where it must, particularly when you consider that Cobb's source novel was named after a Thomas Gray poem, and the exact line from which it takes his name is the paths of glory lead but to the grave, (laughs) which really in its way sets the tone for the film at large because this is a film very much about not just wartime, but the march to death. And specifically in this instance, people being marched to death, which you're going to see in some form or another in all of the films we're talking about today, Mm -hmm. people being walked to their demise knowingly or unknowingly, or in this case involuntarily, which makes it all the more horrifying in turn. Right. And it's fast. It's great to see like Kubrick does this really well. He manages to, depict the primary weapon by which the the officer class get these people to do these impossible you know life-threatening things and that's decorum uh there's this huge emphasis on decorum and behavior and the way you're supposed to uh comport yourself during wartime even when you're being marched to your death to the ex to to the firing squad you're still supposed to like have your chin up um stiff upper lip that kind of thing and um those are the those are the greatest elements of tragedy in Paths of Glory, especially just seeing that divide between this, in a way, artificial sense of not diplomacy, but decorum and politeness and uh, and bravery and dig- and this like false sense of dignity when like it ends up inhibiting their ability to express themselves and to you know pour their emotions out on the table, especially in something as final as death. <laughs> 
Your thoughts? Boom! <laughs> this has been filmography. You, you stopped me cold. <laughs> you want to um, Yeah, I, you know, I think that, and we'll get to this later when we're talking about the the actual filmmaking and the, the way that shots are composed and things, but mm-hmm. um, I was really struck in revisiting it by how compassionately Kubrick approaches those deaths where they're all equally senseless and none of them is any better or worse than the other like i i was just trying to remember this quote from the line in winter about it's when richard and jeffrey are talking in the dungeon i say this like i'm just assuming that y'all love line in winter as much as i do but i'm just going to keep assuming that for We're the purposes of this conversation it's really fucking good yeah can we swear on this one i don't we remember can, yes. okay, okay great. good um it's really fucking good um but they have this conversation about um, when, as if it matters how one falls down, how a man falls down, something like that. And Richard says, when the fall is all there is, it matters. And that is the view that we are used to seeing in war stories of all kinds, I think, right? Like dying mm-hmm. nobly. And I do think that that is going to crop up elsewhere. But the thing that so strikes me about the end of Paths of Glory and and the sort of coda that follows it, the like mini act at the end there, um, is that all three of those men die as well as could be expected because there is so no such thing as dying well when an act is this senseless. They have that march to the firing range that lasts just an eternity, mm-hmm. and then they get there, and one is unconscious, and one is blindfolded and sobbing, and the other stands quietly, and then one doesn't fall at all because he's tied. One falls at the waist because he's tied less well and one falls all the way to the ground and it's this beautiful ugly heartbreaking moment that sort Mm -hmm. of underlines the senselessness of it and all three of them approach this differently and it didn't matter at all it's the same for all three of them because it shouldn't have happened right no i totally agree and there's a there's a conversation i I forget when it happens in the film but just like between two anonymous soldiers where they're just talking about um, you know, I'm not afraid of dying tomorrow, only of getting killed. And they start talking about the different ways in which the they would get killed. Yeah, and the, the bayonet gun, and everything. Yeah. And uh, oh, I guess not a machine gun. Uh, no, it says machine gun. gun. Yeah, Does this it? is yeah, um, yeah. Which would rather be done in by a bayonet or a machine gun? I'm reading from the quotes. I didn't watch the movie this studiously, um, but I, I have it in front of me. But um, and that exchange ends with, um, "Oh, you're too smart for me, Professor. All I know is nobody wants to die." Mm-hmm. And that really cuts to the heart, I think, of what of the emotional core of paths of glory, which is like the, just the way in which war doesn't really provide you an out, especially if you don't, especially if you're thrown, thrown to the wolves a little bit, uh, you I, either die in battle or, you know, you are, you run away to save your life and are still killed by yeah. a military establishment. I love that scene. And it's, I think it's one of the best scenes in the film and everything that I think Cooper tries to accomplish in the cockroach scene is so much better in this little machine gun bayonet conversation Mm -hmm. Um, because it's just pain and death and you're arguing something that I'm sure felt inevitable to those young men and which isn't going to actually be any better either way. Um, It feels very, I was rereading Roger Ebert's essays on these films as I was on my way over here. And he specifically mentions that scene, describes it as being Shakespearean. And it really does feel like a sort of um, brief aside you'd find Mm -hmm. in one of the Henry's or like, um, like the gravedigger scenes in Hamlet or the watchman scenes in Macbeth. Um, 
where it's it's seemingly unimportant and anecdotal, but sort of the whole key of the movie exists in this one little nugget. It's so brilliant. Yeah, I, I love those kinds of things. Those those kinds of scenes where there's just the themes of the film in microcosm. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's beautifully rendered, and especially there because you get this feel of the unanswerable question, and that's kind of one of the things that sits at the center of Kubrick's perception of war is. The question that has no valid answer, it's do you press the nuclear button or not? Do you send these men off to die for cowardice or not? These are things where somebody's going to lose no matter the resolution, and it's just the matter of who. And you hear one of the generals acknowledge as much in that scene to Kirk Douglas late in the film where it's somebody has to answer for this. Mm -hmm. It's not really that these men had to die in any meaningful way. It's simply someone had to answer for the military faux pas that they're choosing to not die constituted. Right, and there's sort of the inherent barbarism of the lot system, right, where the entire regiment is to blame, but we have to pick a scapegoat, so we're going to pick three random people. But then it isn't, right? And I I think that the fact that they were so committed to making sure that these three men, that their circumstances are different. All three of them are different. But the one who's chosen at random is not any more justly killed than the one who is chosen because he's what I think it's socially undesirable. Is that what they say? And is certainly not any more justfully chosen than the man who's being killed because he saw something he shouldn't have, right? It's somehow equally random, even though all three of them are selected for different reasons right and running through all of that in this inhumane world is kirk douglas's character who's a very kirk douglas character this this you know social justice warrior before the before the 21st century very atticus finch like character a little bit and um i love the scene where he um he's just laying in bed and he calls like the sergeant in to pretty much like call him out be like hey you're in charge of the firing squad because uh you called, you know, you 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 it was, you know, you picked uh, Ralph Meeker for whatever reason because you thought he was a coward, right? Um, so that was another great sort of thing. I love. I, I feel like Kirk Douglas relishes those kinds of social humanism roles. Well, absolutely, and I think he stands as this chiseled jaw illustration of Kubrick's feelings on the matter as best you can interpret them. And I think particularly the one time when he lets the movie Star Facade drop is the one that's the most effective. And it's the very last scene, which if we can just touch on that for a second, because it is at once ugly and beautiful, much like the rest of Paths of Glory. It is a scene where a young German woman, assumedly under compulsion to be present, who was played by Suzanne Christian at the time and who became Christian Kubrick, one of Stanley Kubrick's wives. Mm -hmm. She performs for an audience that at first seems avaricious to a disquieting extent, who very much invoke the feelings of the menace of the Paul Mazursky sequence and fear and desire as well but who quickly fall quiet the second she begins to sing the faithful Huzar, which is a German folk song, and they all fall to tears and silence as the gravity of battle sort of sets in on them individually. And then outside all of it, you see Kirk Douglas, who already knows that he's sending more of these men off to die after trying and failing to win the lives of the few who he watched die in front of him regardless and firing squad, And he simply returns to the barracks. This is just another day. Mm -hmm. And 
there's definitely an ugliness to this for starters because this is the literally the only <laughs> the scene only in the movie in which a woman appears on screen in paths of glory and she is to be menaced in that sequence and yet it is also in its way about the quiet terror of war beneath itself yeah um there is an extent to which Paths of Glory is a very male movie and it explores very male issues in terms of like the way in which men are, especially of that time, were faced with growing up really quickly or retreating into sort of boyhood a little bit. This this sort of childlike, um, not tantrum is too reductive a word, but these sort of retreating into this lack of, you know, typically masculine decorum when faced with these really difficult issues. So perhaps... You know, an argument can be made that the introduction of this other element um, this late in the film is suddenly this like punch in the face um, of a different perspective that these men are missing. And maybe this this empathy and humanism that they, for whatever reason, lack, whether it's been hammered out of them, a la Arlie Ermey in Full Metal Jacket or or whatnot. Um, so I, I don't know. It is a very um, harrowing scene but I do think it's a it's a really good capper to the film. Yeah. Mm. I know, yeah. It's... Um, I think you are right. It is a very male film. And this is the part when I say the thing that women always say in conversations like these, mm-hmm. which is that there's nothing wrong with doing a film that's about men in a male situation. It's mm-hmm. just that they're fucking all about men in a male situation. Yeah. It's like you, you dive into the back catalog of cinema and it's just a bunch of dudes talking about dude things and women are just meat. So mm-hmm. um, it's an, a very affecting scene. I'm certainly not arguing that Paths of Glory should have a female presence in it, but... Um, the the twist in that scene that like the hinge on which it turns is that all of a sudden they are moved by what she sings, but they're not moved by her humanity. They're moved mm. because the song catches their imagination and it's nostalgic and painful, and they're confronted by humanity. But it's not her humanity; it's their experience of her singing and her fear and distress and the threat of physical harm doesn't enter into it. And, uh, yeah. So Mm. it is a, it's a beautiful, very affecting scene, um, that I just kind of wish it had been a man, frankly, Mm -hmm. I wish it had been a boy, maybe Mm -hmm. somebody else who could sing. And then, um, it wouldn't be just making it this threat of violence. Okay. Yeah. Well, and and that woman is totally getting raped. Like that's just like, that is, it's very much the hanging implication you're meant to take away from the early part of the sequence. She is, she is bawling justifiably the entire time because of that fear. And, And I totally agree. Like, I think the fact that the fact that she is the only woman in the movie and that is sort of, you know, that is the situation that she is in casts a pall over it simultaneously you bring up a really good point allison in talking about manhood as it relates to all of these films we're discussing really because these are all about kubrick's perception of how masculinity functions under extreme duress to one degree or another as much as anything and if there's a lot of ugly selfish self-serving masculinity and paths of glory then there's a whole spectrum of it in Spartacus. Slaves you were, and slaves you remain. 
But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. If we're going to jump into Spartacus, it has to be spoken about as a product of its time in every possible way because and as a product in his filmography too because this is not a passion product. This is the one he was not passionate Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Kubrick was actually bought in as a scab director for Anthony Mann, who was removed after only a few days. And Kubrick responded by making endless trouble, including requiring the screenwriting citation of Dalton Trumbo, who in 1960, we might have been out of the worst of McCarthyism by then, but he was still blacklisted in Hollywood. And Kubrick mandated that Trumbo be credited. And even though this is very much Kubrick doing a... 1960 studio project for Universal, which would hold as their most successful film of the 1960s. You also get a Kubrick who is starting to experiment with something that would become a major hallmark throughout the rest of his career, which is how do you slip auteur filmmaking into a major studio project? Because this is long before Kubrick had a free pass, right? This is before he was lauded as a visionary to the point where he could get money to make a movie like Barry Lyndon from Warner Brothers. (laughs) This was Kubrick who had established himself because even though, again, Killer's Kiss and The Killing might have gone relatively unseen, but they were critical favorites. Paths of Glory was more successful and also a major critical favorite. Spartacus would go on to be his first true blue Oscar nominee and winner. And... In that, you see Kubrick rising from this man who's doing really interesting things within the framework of studio filmmaking, trying to fold those interesting things into an aggressively old Hollywood studio movie. Yeah, I mean, imagine being Kubrick and basically having to worm your own instincts into what is essentially a William Wyler impression. A little bit like it's just again. Don't it's like, you talk shit about William. Oh, Lyle. no, he's great. He's I won't great. Stand for it. No, 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 he's great. Um, But it's just, you know, it's it's so un-Kubrick. It's such an un-Kubrick movie. <laughs> Some of it's pretty Kubrick. I guess so. But I mean, it doesn't for me, it doesn't. Maybe it's because of the, the, the Technicolor, the Cinemascope, whatever. But just it looks so it looks and feels so different for mm-hmm. me, at least. But then again. That's also me popping my head up over the three and a half hours that movie is. I feel like I'm still watching it. Yeah, I'll never not be watching it. Are there are there Showtime seasons of Spartacus that are shorter than the movie Spartacus? They might just be. Yeah. They are no less homoerotic, however, which is a point that mm. I feel like if we're going to move on with Spartacus, we just need to address the elephant in the room, which is mm. for being a film in an era. Don't, don't talk about Peter Houston off that way. It was coming. It was coming off the repression of the 1950s. It was coming into an era of great social divide. And here you have Stanley Kubrick staging an aggressively butch movie that is simultaneously incredibly queer coded. So many oily men. Start to finish. And I mean, I think the best example of that is the Tony Curtis bathhouse sequence about which was put back into the film when it was restored. That was cut for the code when it was first. Oh, nice. I did not know that. Which would absolutely fit because even by code standards, and we talked about this a little bit last week, there was a lot of queer coding in film back then. And as long as the characters were punished at the end, you could get away with a pretty wide berth. 
In Spartacus, you have a sequence that is about as tender and erotic a sequence between two men has has ever been portrayed in a studio movie. That is a sequence you would have a hard time selling a studio on today, and I firmly maintain that. Like, Gladiator, Ridley Scott flirts with Joaquin Phoenix's orientation throughout it, but he flirts. He does not go full tilt a man referring to another man as master on screen for several minutes of screen time. And the reason I bring all this up isn't just for us to have a hearty chuckle, but because this is a subversive studio film in its way. And this is just the first of the ways between that and the bracing violence. This is very much Stanley Kubrick taking his best shot at the traditional canonical studio epic. Right. Well, and not even that scene isn't even just um, flirting with that in terms of the position of the actors and the fact that it's in a bathhouse and the actual physical actions. The dialogue itself is talking about preferences, right? And tastes and attitudes and about whether you're not, you're like you're into snails or oysters or, you know, and taste is not the same as appetite and therefore not a question of morals. And I think that's a really interesting way to sneak some subversive stuff in. Yeah. I like both oysters and snails is not subtle. No. Um, So that was like a great big, Hey, this character is bisexual thing that was planted right in the middle of the film. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hi, I'm Laurence Olivier and I'm playing a bisexual, (laughs) um, which is wild. Uh, I, that is my favorite line in the film though. You know, it's, I, I think that this is part of why Spartacus has become something of like a, uh, like a camp classic while also being this lauded pillar of cinema. Those those two th- categories do not often overlap, yeah. uh, but they do here, and, <laughs> and that is part of it. The, the other would be that Tony Curtis is so dolled up He's got on so much eyeliner and they do, and he's so oily and they just do not even ask him to attempt to hide his accent. Um, and then it would go on later to feature prominently in Clueless. Yes. Amy Heckerling's Clueless as a signifier that this person that Cher is determined to date is a homosexual. Um, I just wish that... Ugh, um, I just... I, I wish that if... Kubrick was going to go a little bit queer with it, like a like a cinema epic that maybe it wasn't the villainous um, yeah. character that had this bent because that is not great. And I mean, yeah. this is this is how it was done back then, unfortunately, which is the worst and most accurate excuse for that all the time, always. Yeah, because it's at once a total misappropriation of how things should have been and an acknowledgement that if Kubrick wanted to put this on the screen again, the scene in question wasn't even on screen. However, there are a great many more scenes about beautiful tanned men performing hideous hideous acts of violence which is if we're coming back to the warfare theme of spartacus if paths of glory was kubrick's first true step into visualizing the violence of war in a very brutal and pragmatic almost fashion spartacus definitely looks at it head on because not only have a lot of these swordplay scenes come to form so much of the modern language of how we understand sword and sandal epics so to speak 
but you also have this tendency for Kubrick to really look upon the brutality of it because he's looking at gladiator warfare, but looking at it through a modern prism of here is the atrocity that this constituted. Yeah. Um, I will say on a lighter note, I definitely want the gladiator workout plan. Uh, I want those spinning, the spinning things that you have to duck and jump over. Uh, I'm, I'm currently looking for workout advice, so I, I'm taking everything I can get. Um, but that aside, I totally agree that there is um, a brutality that, uh, that you don't really expect out of such uh, sort of what you would consider a glitzy glam old Hollywood epic. I mean, even if it is a big war film about big stories and big ideas, there is an intimacy to the gladiator scenes, especially. And um, even when they're not fighting, like I felt I felt an element of menace in just in that small scene where they're painting up um kirk douglas paint, painting of spartacus like in the various areas of like what constitutes like a real kill when they're practicing um and then seeing like the slow kill and the the injury and the quick kill um that kind of stuff so even when they're not even when they're not fighting they're talking about fighting and the the effects of it well and even even as with paths of glory again you have this dichotomy drawn out in much greater detail here between the soldiers on the battleground, the gladiators here discussing the pragmatic details of their daily reality. And then the people on high, the people in political power in Rome in this instance, having much more macro scale concerns. Yeah. The two are almost oblivious to one another until the point at which Spartacus becomes a political issue. Right. In that respect, there are some parallels to Paths of Glory where there are two different groups of people. Um, you know, you, you have this upper class that is controlling this entire group of people with barely any sort of uh, power of their own and uh, seeing the machinations between between individuals in this, you know, quote unquote officer class to extend it to paths of glory um, and the ways in which that affects the little people in ways they cannot control, um, I think is really interesting. Yeah, I think there's one significant difference, which mm-hmm. is that. I I mean, I think that Paths of Glory is the superior film, personally. There's something about watching all three and a half freaking hours of Spartacus and watching Kubrick try again and again to come up with one shot as good as as the Battlefield Hospital shot in Gone with the Wind, which came out 20 years before this movie. (laughs) That's like, oh, buddy. But obviously it's a an incredibly well-made film. Yeah, it's gorgeous. There's a lot of power to it, some great performances. But one, but Paths of Glory is just like more intimate and upsetting and, Mm -hmm. you know, 90 minutes long (laughs) and more my speed. Um, But one area where Spartacus has the edge, I think, is that Olivier's character, Crassus, is not just motivated by pettiness and self-interest. He is, absolutely. Like, Mm -hmm. this is a film where all the rich dudes are fighting this war and it's all ego and bullshit, um, very similarly to the way to the, that the two higher ups in Paths of Glory are so motivated by their own self interest and so disinterested in the lives yeah. of the men that they command, but because Olivier has this psychosexual thing going on, there's this undertone of like possession and justification and demonstration that I think makes the dynamic much more interesting. It feels like less of a parable and more of like a complicated stew. Um, and when when I was rewatching this, I was like, God, Olivier is really hamming this up. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, he's so good. Because that's the magic of Lawrence Olivier, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. all of a sudden you're like, just do Hamlet for me again. Just one more time, please. 
Well, um, he was and, great. And even like characters in that sphere become even more complex the more the movie goes on. Like I, yeah. I think specifically of Peter Ustinov's Batiatis, like mm-hmm. um, his scenes, Charles Lawton's Gracchus. Yeah. Too. And like those, their scenes together are so great where you see them operating in this upper crust sphere, but also navigating the lower crust, like in fascinating ways, like they, he, they navigate those worlds and they're somewhere in between. And I think from their perspective, you get the most honest, appraisal of how the Roman Empire is going. Absolutely. And I think if there's one thing to be said for that wide berth, it's it's precisely that. It's how the film allows it to draw itself a full social ecosystem, which you don't get with even a lot of the great historical epics. Mm-hmm. You have a feel of Rome by the end of this film from the absolute upper castes and the highest realms of society down to the lowliest slaves. And particularly in the way Spartacus plans out, once again, as with Paths of Glory, it has, as Ebert once put it, returning to his work once more, it has the ending it must. And Spartacus could end in no other honest way. And I think as much as anything, it's worth acknowledging that there is a despair to the final image of that film in particular that is indelible as far as war films go, where it's. A row of men, as far as the eye can see down the road, dead on crosses while a baby of a leader trots on in horse and carriage to the next step of life. Yeah. Also, recently, I guess not recently, Game of Thrones has been on for a long time, but, Mm. you know, in the last decade, um, nodded too pretty directly in an episode of Game of Thrones when Daenerys is traveling from, I don't know, one city where people call her a savior to the next city where people call her a savior mm-hmm. um, and sees a line of slaves just crucified and dying on poles. Mm. I don't actually remember if they're crucified, but they're definitely on yeah, the they're, they're crucified. Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously it's an image that's um, that's carried down over the decades. Right. And then I guess that's another way it differs from Paths of Glory, where I feel like Paths of Glory doesn't really believe in the noble sacrifice. But no. there Paths of Glory is a bitter all. pill. Yeah. It's just the same thing is going to happen all over again. You can tell. When Kirk mm-hmm. Douglas walks away from watching that poor woman cry and does nothing. Yeah. Um, it's just like another day at the office. Right. There is no hope. But with Spartacus, there is a sense of of sacri- of noble sacrifice, of giving literally everything to a noble cause. Mm-hmm. And so I think maybe that's the difference between the two is that Paths of Glory, I think, unequivocally um, paints World War One as not really having that level of 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 import that re- that would require such noble sacrifices of so many people. Whereas the the freedom of slaves is you know an unequivocal moral good and requires that level of sacrifice. But it's also the same acknowledgement that Paths of Glory makes, which is freedom as attained through savage violence. Yeah. And like there's still great costs, great, great costs. So many dead kids. A lot Just of like dead kids. tiny dead kids. Yeah. And well, and if we're talking about like the broad level cost of death to push the world where it must go, then I guess that's a good time to also touch on the cost of death to push the world where nothing can go and get into Dr. Strangelove because we're this the podcast, feel good movie in this roster. Somehow that's accurate. Yeah. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, 
and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. And because well, it's a comedy. Yeah. And Dr. Strangelove is going to take a distinct turn for Kubrick that he would never really make again. It is the only I mean, I think parts of Eyes Wide Shut are funny as hell. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> but in general, this is the only outright comedy that Kubrick would ever make aside from Barry Lyndon, which is maybe the <laughs> driest interpretation of the word comedy ever committed to celluloid. But yeah. we'll get to that in a couple weeks. In the meantime, we have Dr. Strangelove. It's 1964. As Clint mentioned in the introduction to the episode, we are now in the thick of the Cold War panic. Kids are being taught to hide under their desks as though it would save them from a nuclear bomb and schools the nation over. Mm-hmm. And Stanley Kubrick, who has recently moved over to the United Kingdom for what would be the rest of his life, starts collaborating with Peter Sellers. Now, he works with him on Lolita, which we'll get to in next week's episode, and then he works with him in Dr. Strangelove, where Sellers plays three roles at once. <laughs> and it's, and it was supposed to be four. It was yeah. supposed to be four. <laughs> Who, what was the fourth? Yeah, he was also supposed to play King Kong, Slim Pickens. Ah, wow. Yeah, but he was nervous about the accent. Ah. So Kubrick bought Slim Pickens in and did not tell him it was a comedy. Oh, well. There you go. There you a go. little anecdote for you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it is it is the driest of dry comedies, uh, Dr. Strangelove. And I think it, I don't know, there's a, there's a sort of a sense of... Uh, dancing on tombstones a little bit i guess like dancing in a graveyard a little bit where it, there's i don't know there's a liberation i think that comes in dr strange love from just like sort of knowing that the end is near and that you can't really stop it and we might as well just have a big old laugh while we're while the bombs are falling and and we'll talk about in the second half the ways Kubrick accomplishes that technically because I think that's a big component of why the film works the way it does. But in just in layman's terms, this is one of the most ambitious comedies ever made because it's a comedy that is funny as hell until the exact second it isn't. Yeah. And then it ends with one of maybe the most unforgiving punchlines in any comic medium. Where it's a comedy about the moments leading up to the apocalypse and to the return to return to the ideal of maleness and war in Kubrick's work. As we're talking about it here, this is a movie where aggressive, toxic masculinity is the thing that walks us to the brink. Yeah, so much of the movie. I mean. Obviously, it's uh, it's a very phallic movie. I mean, with the bombs and all everything else. But it, the the whole movie is kind of one big dick measuring contest. It's one giant display of sexual insecurities. But I mean, particularly from men, uh, primarily entirely from men. And uh, yeah, it's just it's it's great the ways in, in which Kubrick is able to weave that patheticness into each of the different permutations of all the factors, all the dominoes that have to fall for this apocalypse to happen. Um, Whether it's the, uh, whether it's general Ripper being terrified that like conspiracies are removing his sexual potency um, to God, the slim Pickens riding a fucking rocket down to the fucking ground um, in the biggest look at my penis metaphor ever committed to celluloid. Absolutely. This is even by the standards of a number of films in this episode that we would charitably call unsubtle. 
Dr. Strangelove is especially so. Yeah. And and I think that works for it, though, because it is blunt force satire in the way of the best satire where it's body. Exactly. You know? It's body, but in a way that works. And it's hard to get into the learnness of it without getting too far away from sellers. But I want to talk about the other performance I adore in this, which is George C. Scott <laughs> as Buck Turgidson. This and is again, turgid. And yeah, again, not a subtle film. But this is six years before George C. Scott would have his career-defining performance as General Patton, which makes this movie even funnier in hindsight. Because Turgidson is played as the ultimate physical illustration of the film's core metaphor, right? He is this walking buffoon of a man who is sitting in the war room pointing at the big board like he's an eight-year-old, yelling about how we need to drop bombs as a response to virtually every diplomatic issue. <laughs> Which, again, if you put it against, and I mentioned this in last week's episode, Kubrick moving to the UK in the 1960s largely because of his disinterest in modern American politics and what he saw as a growing blight on the country, this is Kubrick taking a swing at dick swinging America from a long, long distance, but also completely nailing the shot because <laughs> Buck Turgidson is a caricature that you could tune in and see on SNL today that he had an actor as reputable as George C. Scott doing in the mid 60s. Yeah. Well, I see. Here's the thing. Um, going back a few minutes, I, I would have sworn that George C. Scott's iconic role was the Day of the Dolphin. But I digress moving forward. You do digress. I do. That's why that's why I'm here. <laughs> so especially with the manhood of Dr. Strangelove, it's really interesting because when you consider Seller's star persona, he is the ultimate indication at this era of history that you are sitting down to watch a comedy. He is one of the global faces of film comedy during this time. So to invoke Peter Sellers is to invoke pratfalls and all sorts of goofs and gaffes and mm. other fun material. And to do that in the context of a Cold War film was both bold and completely perfect because nowadays it's – Again, it's a performance that's timeless because it's so broad that it can echo through any era of politics while also simultaneously hearkening back to this very specific place. And again, much like the film, he's hysterical until the second that a kind of terror emerges from him. And then he goes back to being hysterical again. Yeah, I mean, the the crowning note for me of that performance is when Dr. Strangelove um, is suggesting how human life could be carried on in the bunker. Yeah. Uh, and he gets all excited about the ratio of men to women. Um, uh, see any message board on the internet for other, other examples of this dude. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, funny and like, a, Oh God. Right. Way. Well, and also the moment in which his subtext becomes text and he just starts hiling and surrendering to like his, what is very clearly coded as like a former Nazi scientist that has been brought over. Absolutely. And again, these are cultural touchstones that obviously would have hit directly home with an audience in the mid 60s, but that still land today because they're both broad and they're very specific to their era. Well, and I think part of the reason that the film works is because obviously all three of Sellers performances are great. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and man, can you imagine if he had also played the Slim Pickens role? <laughs> Um, I, I I don't want to imagine that world no, because I like this Pickens movie exactly as it is, yeah. but it is fun to sort of daydream about. But um, I think that part of why it works so well is that Dr. Strangelove is one end of the spectrum and then Lionel Mandrake is the other end of the spectrum and President Merkin Muffley, not a subtle yep. film, is uh, right there in the middle and Sellers manages to walk this line where all three of them are very funny performances, but one is wildly over the top, another is relatively subtle, still funny, but relatively subtle, and the other is is um, sort of the straight man, and then sometimes yeah. not. Um, so they're on this spectrum of le- spectrum of like most grounded to least grounded in a way that I think is really effective. I'm a big fan of that. I think my favorite scene in the film is actually when President Muffley is on the phone with the premier of Russia, yeah, right, of the Soviet Union, uh, and they're of course I like to call you. Of course I like to say hello. Just just any time, just for any time. Yeah, it's just really great. It's, it's a so masterpiece funny. of comedy mm-hmm. built out of half a conversation. It's incredible writing right but the one thing i think is really interesting especially in context of that and in terms of all these double entendres that we've been incidentally naming just by rattling off character names right also uh colonel bat guano yeah keenan uh, uh colonel or brigadier general jack d ripper that's another really good one. Yeah. Um, Lothar that's, Zog. That's so great. James Earl Jones in an early role. Yeah. Yeah. And there are there are a bunch of gems in there. Well, and yeah. once again, you see... Burpleson, lest we forget Burpleson. Oh, Burpleson, yeah. Lest we forget. But no, I think you with Strange Love, you really get a sense of Kubrick, to use the British expression. Oh, Gross. God. Every time I'm American and say a British thing, I just want to beat myself up while calling myself a nerd, so I apologize. <laughs> but he's taking the piss out of the entire political structure and out of the notion of power in and of itself because you see a little bit of his contempt for ruling classes of power and paths of glory, and that's really going to emerge when we get to our next film. But Kubrick's interest in power is clearly in this kind of detached rats in a maze way that people tend to attribute to him where he's interested in what makes a person into the kind of person who wants power in so many words. Right. And uh, I think it's strange love for me, at least that really where he really starts to key in to what could be considered his distinctive visual style. I mean that, that I believe it's Ken Adams did the production design for that, that beautiful war room that is iconic. That is so that is so indelible that I think like real war rooms have been designed after it. Um, that kind of thing. But and it's basically just lights in a table. It's, it, it's nuts. Yeah, I know. And, and the, the magic they can weave with it. Um, yeah. And just all, all those long shots, the fisheye lens, it feels so absurd and claustrophobic and yet incredibly lonely at the same time. It's all so great. And it serves the comedy too. And then it all doesn't matter because right. the fucking world ends. The world ends. And that's another thing, like, Going back to the Cold War elements of this, this is different than Paths of Glory where it's like individual men having to take individual positions or Spartacus where like entire campaigns of warfare having to happen. No, this is 
the world is fine, the world is dead, with the push of a button. Exactly. We're building a film out of the parlor discussions in Paths of Glory or Spartacus. This mm-hmm. is a film exclusively, I mean, you get a look at the foot soldiers, most of whom are killed in a fuga confusion and absurdity. Yeah. But you get a look at them, but it's mostly about the room full of men who run the world. And if... Dr. Strangelove is apocalyptic, then you might declare Full Metal Jacket the hell afterwards. Right, and it does swing much more towards that end of the pendulum, but uh, you do get the B-52 pilots and their crew, and you don't really get much of them apart from like individual asides and those little comedic bits. Like I love their little pack, their little supply pack of everything they're going to do, like they, including prophylactics. Again, not a subtle film. And that little tiny book of like, you know, a conversational Russian or whatever. Um, it's great. By the way, if you get the Criterion set, you get that book. That's awesome. It's a little tiny book. Like when we take a break, I'll show it to you. It's great. Um, but you know, seeing that that human element too, where it's but it's not really like on their side. They're just cogs in a machine, and they just fulfill what they want want to do. And uh, and um, Slim Pickens, King Kong, especially is very, he's very committed to his job. Um, and you know, I it, they get really. You know, they don't get a lot of screen time, but they get to establish really strong personalities. Absolutely. And once again, you have the dichotomy between the foot soldier and the person sending him off to die. Yeah. Which, again, to fully draw us in, that's the crux of Full Metal Jacket, which is more exclusively about the foot soldier than any of these other yeah. features. Get your fat ass over there, Private Pile. Oh, that's right, Private Pile. Don't make any fucking effort to get up to the top of the fucking obstacle. If God wanted you up there, he would have miracled your ass up there by now, wouldn't he? Say yes, sir. Get your fat ass up there, Pile. Because you get brief looks at generals and corporals and what have you, but the biggest authority figure in the film is arguably the drill sergeant after which point it's whoever is in power until they die and then the next person assumes power this is a film where so we're jumping forward more than two decades 23 years after dr strangelove we're doing full metal jacket this is again kubrick's penultimate feature like allison and i are actually alive by this point that the movie actually comes out and i'm not quite yet yes but anyway i i (laughs) I am but cells at this moment. But regardless, um, by 1987, Kubrick's auteurism is in full swing. As we mentioned earlier in this half, we are at the point where Kubrick can get a major studio to throw money at him to do pretty much anything. It's based on Gustav Hasford's novel, The Short Timers, and Kubrick now jumps forward to Vietnam. And this was back during the 80s when film was reckoning with Vietnam in all manner of ways from Born on the Fourth of July to Platoon to the Deer Hunter. To Aliens. <laughs> in its own Which manner. Which is true. Honestly, in its yeah. own way, absolutely. And you have cinema starting to reckon with the legacy of the Vietnam War. It was still fresh enough for people that stories of it were still visceral, were still hitting home. And Kubrick responds with a tone poem that was highly polarizing at the time. Its only Oscar nomination was for screenplay, which is probably criminal. And 
it was very much a two-act play about the absolute hell of war. And more than any other film that we've talked about today so far, Full Metal Jacket is about the personal nightmare of war. And you get that most in the initial sequence, which is boot camp for the Vietnam War, led by the eternal Arlie Ermey as the scariest drill instructor in cinema history who breaks people purposely for the express purpose of turning them into killing machines. The film then jumps forward to seeing them in Vietnam where they're forced to encounter the realities of day-to-day violence where the attacker is faceless, death is omnipresent, and all there is is your limited skill set and your survival instincts. Which is fascinating because, um, I mean, this is a movie of very, very divergent halves. I mean, I think they they effectively feel like two different films. I mean, the, uh, you know, variations on theme, like they they both look similar, but uh, like I feel like the drill sergeant, the boot camp story feels so much like its own thing, like its own short story, its own novella. And then you bring Private Joker, played by Matthew Modine, over to Vietnam. And it's weird because, I mean, the, the first half is about breaking, like you said, breaking you down and turning into a killing machine. But um, Private Joker becomes a journalist. And that offers us yet another interesting angle into the politics of Vietnam and the ways in which the bureaucracy and the the officers once again are dealing with that and sort of deflecting uh, the hard questions. And funny enough, even Joker is sort of having this ambivalence toward asking those hard questions too. Mm -hmm. He's kind of one that just gets through Vietnam. Performative hippiedom. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, Like, Ooh, look at my button. Yeah. He's got a look at my peace sign button. Right. Aren't I making you angry? And his born to kill helmet alongside it. Right. I think I was saying something about the duality of man, sir. (laughs) Yeah. And and again, like kind of like Dr. Strangelove, there is this um, wry comedy to it, especially with Arlie Ermey. God, it's a performance for the fucking ages. It's the role he was literally born to play because, I mean, he was a drill sergeant and he was wasn't. Correct me if I'm wrong. He was like initially a consultant or whatever. Yes, he was bought on set as a consultant to basically give the actors an indication of how they should expect the drill training scenes to go because Kubrick wanted them to react faithfully on camera. And he was so good that he ended up taking the position of the actor who still plays a role in the film. The actor who was supposed to play the drill sergeant role ended up playing the door gunner during the helicopter sequence. And that is a strong like cameo too. Yes. So Kubrick gave him the one scene part as a sort of an apology for giving, (laughs) for taking the role of a lifetime away from him. Right. Right. But then again, I mean, earlier me picks that up, picks that ball and runs with it. It's just a bravura performance. It's just spit and vinegar, fire and brimstone. And I think it's a testament to early Ermy that, though he would go on to basically play that drill sergeant in a million other roles, like they would just, anytime they needed a drill sergeant, they would just bring him in. He actually like went on to have a really varied career um, playing all kinds of great roles. Like, I mean, he was the boss in the remake of Willard and he was actually really great as the police chief in seven. So like just a testament to like that level of discovery that Kubrick knew to bring this guy in to do, you know, again, like what 
his what his DNA tells him he's good to, at doing, you know? Well, absolutely. And I think you see across all of his movies, he finds actors who could not be more por- perfect for the specific role they're inhabiting. And you get Lee Ermey in that here. You get Matthew Modine in his way, who I think does a really good job of drawing out that disingenuousness and contradiction in the character that you pointed out, Allison. Mm-hmm. And I think in general, you get a lot of actors playing bit parts who know how to fit the whole, because that's the thing. Full Metal Jacket, more than a lot of his films, is a sketch in a lot of respects. I'm not saying that in any kind of derogatory manner, to be clear. I'm just saying it's a sketch in as much as Kubrick is playing broadly with themes and drawing very broadly in a way that he'd done very few times before and wouldn't really do again. Cause whatever you say for eyes wide shut, it's an extremely clear eyed film about what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. Full metal jacket is maybe the only time in all of my viewing for this podcast, aside from perhaps 2001 where Kubrick just seems to be pushing and pushing and pushing and wherever he finds the end is wherever he finds the end, but that's not the real purpose. It's the push. Yeah. And it is, you know, much like 2001. So such a mood piece. It is it is there. It is concerned with placing these characters in a situation, letting them live there for a while and seeing what effect it has on them, whether it's the boot camp, whether it's Vietnam um, in or whether it's, you know, even when it's that extended final act. In, in that sniper's nest, you know, when they're dealing with the sniper like that, that scene goes on forever. I thought it was just going to be another set piece, but then it turned out, no, it's this is like sort of the emotional end of the movie. This is the final act. Um, and, you know, the way he's able to pull it off is extraordinary. I, I really like Full Metal Jacket. I, I don't know if that's a hot take. I, I'm I'm not sure it's a hot take. I think my <laughs> relative ambivalence about Full Metal Jacket might be slightly more of a hot take. Uh-huh. Um I, I mean, it's there are things you can't really deny about it. It's visually stunning. There are some incredible shots. I'm particularly partial to uh, when they're with the, uh, the I think it's a news camera, um, going down the line and everybody is introducing themselves. And yeah. it's just more and more ridiculous, but also more and more men that you know are just going to die. Um, that is a scene that I find particularly striking. But um, I think that the film suffers from... The fact that the the first, I guess third, really, yeah. uh, the boot camp section is so good. Yeah. And it's very focused on the specifically on this relationship between Joker and Pyle. Yeah. And here's where we should talk about Vincent D'Onofrio and how good he is in this, Ooh. how terrifying he is in this yeah. movie. Um because it's focused on that relationship and then it sort of comes to a head with this nighttime beating of Pyle that Modine's character participates in and his turmoil over the part he plays in that relationship and the resentment he feels towards this man but also the protection he feels towards this man and um, his horror and fear and guilt over what happens and then all of that just seems to go away and it doesn't I don't get a sense of any of that in who he is or what he's experiencing until the very end and even then it doesn't seem to connect the dots in a way that uh, that seems to center the film on Joker, which is fine, but if you want to Winesburg, Ohio it, then Winesburg, Ohio it. But then I'm not sure why we didn't just leap into Vietnam and leave most of and leave Modine behind. No, it's true. You raise really good points. And I completely agree with you that the movie is never as good as that first act. But it is fascinating in the second half about how that 
relationship sort of gets transplanted, I think, or at least the level of care that Joker invests in the relationship between him and Pyle gets sort of transferred into his relationship with Cowboy in the second. Like, mm. to a certain extent, because he's kind of the third lead, but he's not really much of a presence in the boot camp stuff. And then he reappears in the in the, uh, in the Vietnam they stuff. They do have that one really great scene together where they're cleaning the, the lavatory. Yeah. Is it a head if it's not on a boat? I don't know. That's a good question. The the John when they're cleaning yeah, the John, the, yeah, uh, and talking about whether or not Pyle is eighty seven, and then they go back to bantering about moms and sisters and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and maybe that's the point too, where the the idea that even if they were sort of comparatively strangers, the fact that they they see each other and they're they're alive and they're in Vietnam, that's enough. Especially like given the restructuring of their minds and their identities that boot camp puts them through um that there's enough of a brotherhood there that they find so much meaning in that connection especially when it is ripped away at the end well exactly and i think this is a case of people being dragged so far beyond the pale that whatever they can again whatever they can retain at the end is what they'll take with them whatever that may be and that terror of just how open and nebulous that is buoys a lot of the film Mm -hmm. and i think as much as anything you see in this film the same contradiction you see in a lot of others which is you have people trudging off on a purpose that they don't fully understand that they know it's probably going to get them killed and in most cases on screen it will And they're doing it for no real better reason than because they believe it's what they're supposed to do and they believe in the righteousness of it. But unlike the relative optimism of Spartacus, this is much more Kubrick working in the paths of glory mode Uh where you see people on the battlefield who know they're doomed, who are trying to justify that sensation of being doomed, and then it will just be another day. Now, the difference is in paths of glory – only the officer really gets to have that moment of it'll just be another day. Full Metal Jacket ends on a far more horrifying note where it's these men soldiering on in silhouette, one really indistinguishable from the next, mm-hmm. as fires burn behind them, singing the Mickey Mouse Club theme. Right. And that's another thing, like, I think Full Metal Jacket, more than these others, like, really, really hammers home the loss of innocence that happens to people in war like um you know with, with paths of glory like to a certain extent the characters in question feel as though they have the option to to not participate in these deadly actions and like they have an ambivalence about participating in war full metal jacket depicts the military establishments that are put in place to break you down and turn you into a person that not just will conduct yourself during war, but loves it. And like, it turns them into, like you said, killers, like active killers where they, there is a bloodlust, especially with characters like animal mother played by the ever gross Adam Baldwin. Um, you know, it's in the, the, the barbarism by which these characters comport themselves, I think is especially telling, but it's also adaptive in its own way. It's repulsive, but it's adaptive just the same. Yeah. Well, crazy stuff on the note of war is hell. We're (laughs) going to go into our mid show break. Thank you for listening. Please stay tuned. We're going to be talking cinematography, editing and score just as soon as we get back. So stay tuned to filmography. And we're back. Thank you for joining us for the second half of filmography. If you're just coming into the podcast, go listen to the first half. What are you doing? But thank you for sticking around. And if in the first half we talked 
the films at large. Now we're going to get down into the nitty gritty dissection. And if we're talking Kubrick, we're talking visual and we're talking style. So we're going to go back through the features and let's talk cinematography and let's talk Kubrick's style around it. Sure. So for Paths of Glory, you have George Krauss stepping in. Now, again, Kubrick by now is not doing his own cinematography because that's not how guilds work in Hollywood. And you have Krauss visualizing war alongside Kubrick as an absolute hellscape with a number of Kubrick signatures. And I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't start off with the sidetracking dolly shot on the war field as the men attempt to take the anthill. Because that is as iconic a Kubrick stylistic trick as any. That side-scrolling, it's right-to-left in this instance image where Krauss just simply follows the men running over hills and over bodies. Now, for as brutal as the film is, you never see someone get hit because you have Kirk Douglas as this focal point during this period where he's just being tracked across a blood spattered landscape. But, and again, all in lush black and white. And I can't um, credit Krauss enough for that. The visual of it is beautiful. And again, it's beautiful and ugly to return to how we've been invoking it throughout the show. Right. And then those broad battlefields are then contrasted with these claustrophobic trenches. You know, it's, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of that beautiful tracking shot of him just like running around, uh, like not running around, but like walking close up with his face right in the middle of the frame, just stoically walking through these trenches as, you know, bodies are just strewn around him and people are wounded and uh, just him seeing the devastation around him. It's a very stark portrayal of how, uh, how trench warfare, you know, goes. It's, yeah, it's I, I was particularly struck by the, any scene where Kubrick was able to and Krauss were able to contrast the pomp and circumstance with the like grimy reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so that happens most often when we're dealing with either of the higher ups and specifically when we're looking at the march toward the firing range, which goes on for so long and just sort of leapfrogs between all three men, primarily the two that are conscious. Um, One sort of walking stoically and the other weeping. And even Mm -hmm. the priest is telling him to get himself, get himself together and act like a man. And of course it's just ludicrous. Why on earth would you, while you're seeing this palatial backdrop these very still crowds, it's all very ornamental, and you get a real sense of the scope of it, but the scope is simultaneously big, epic, grandiose, militaristic, and tiny, intimate, sobbing dude. Yeah, and especially when they cut back in that same sequence to a POV shot basically of Kirk Douglas like watching them in the ca- as they're yeah. passing, the camera stays on him and his face just tracks through them. It's so... It's so heartbreaking because you can sort of see how much he feels he's failed these men, but he's still holding it together for that. And, you know, you were mentioning the stoic officer before, and he even gets his own freak out the previous night. I mean, that's half the reason why. Well, that's pretty much the reason why the third guy is in a stretcher. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I do want to point out that that guy, um, the guy who freaks out the night before is played by Ralph Meeker, who I know uh, best from Kiss Me Deadly as uh, Mike Hammer. It's he's he's a really good performer. And it's nice to see him in this. 
um, star on the rise. But <laughs> but uh, no, that th- those scenes are are particularly harrowing. And even um, we've been dancing around the fact that this is not just a war movie; it's a courtroom drama. And the courtroom scenes are especially well done. Like that deep focus photography where you're seeing Kirk Douglas's face just hard in the foreground but you can see entire groups of people um positioned in these elegant ways um in the background and in the like the middle and further distance it's beautiful well and i think there's a really stark compositional dichotomy between that and then some of the editorial choices earlier in the film and i think particularly of the early going where you have that extremely stark cut from the two generals sitting in just the most set-dressed Hollywood, late 1950s set possible to the men in the trenches. And you don't have a more stark two-shot illustration of the film's central thesis than in that transition. Because you get these people living in privilege, having these blissfully ignorant, nebulous discussions about the lives of other people— And then Kubrick immediately drags you over to look at those other people. And I mean, his boldest editorial choice is yet to come in 2001, obviously, but it's almost like a spiritual precursor to that in a manner because you get this jump from the early moment, the long off distance to where the story is actually going to take place in one clean shot. Mm -hmm. And I think that's remarkable. And then I think particularly the way I want to go back for just a second to the way that um, that Krauss photographs the trenches because there is a tactile quality to those sequences that I think really puts over the nightmarishness of the trench experience for the foot soldiers of World War One. Yeah, you feel every, you see every speck of dirt, every shoddily put together structure, um, and you feel like these these men feel like rats in a maze. And uh, just the and especially the black and white photography, that high contrast photography um, scanning over Kirk Douglas's face, who's he's still in hunk mode. I mean, both this and Spartacus have more than their fair share of like contractually obligated shirtless scenes, even paths of glory. We introduce him with his shirt off. It's it's a very Shatnerian move. Um, but even then, like the, the 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 sheer detail of the cinematography, especially in those close ups, um, scans through every pockmark and wrinkle and that cavernous chin dimple of Kirk Douglas's face and uh it's just it's mesmerizing to watch his face looks like a it's a it's a war-torn landscape through that uh that black and white photography well and the contradiction between light and dark is kind of integral to the film in a lot of respects i mean one of the more striking images that really lingers with me is there's a scene where the three men slated to die are in prison near the end And there's this wide angle shot of a pair of guards marching outside their barracks in the dead of night where the men are being held. And it's just these faceless people bathed mostly in shadow, except for when they briefly pass through the light, just standing sentry. And it's just such a singularly nightmarish borderline surreal and yet completely rooted in reality image it's the kind of thing that lingers and it's one of those that really suggests that Krauss and Kubrick had this idea of how to I mean war is hell and that's the cliche but they were depicting it as such when a lot of films were still reluctant especially with it being still relatively fresh in 1957 again. I mean, you had even older people were still, many of them veterans, those who were fortunate enough to come home. 
Right. And there is a distinct lack of glamour in those foot soldiers, right? Like even Douglas to an extent, um, you know, everyone is covered in soot and dirt. Like no one is, no one is too vain to like have their movie star looks, um, you know, disrupted by, you know, the, the, the vagaries of war, I suppose. And, uh, yeah, that, that soot covered, um, photography and the, the filthy costumes and everything, like it all lends itself to this, this stark realism that uh, really contributes to Paths of Glory um, and being it being a, being as effective as it is. So now let's take a hard left out of stark realism <laughs> and talk about Spartacus instead. Because Dazzling Technicolor. Absolutely. So if Kubrick in Paths of Glory was working on war and battle as a savage thing uh, and again desaturated thing. Spartacus is speaking the grandest and oldest cinematic language of them all. Live and in Technicolor. <laughs> so Russell Meddy's work on Spartacus won the Academy Award in 1961. And along with production design, costume design, and Peter Ustinov as supporting actor, as it were. And all of these laurels clearly belong to the film because it is nothing if not a lavish old Hollywood Universal Studios production. And again, Spartacus is arriving at the end of the grandiose epic era because what nearly killed the film industry throughout the rest of the 1960s and even in the late 50s leading up to this were a series of bloated epics that nearly bankrupt and in some cases did bankrupt lesser studios. So Spartacus is Kubrick working on a grand scale, again, a scale that he inherited and didn't really select from the get-go. And Allison, in the first half, you invoked Gone with the Wind and Pursuing the Hospital Shot. And I think it's relevant here because what Meddy and Kubrick are trying to accomplish are countless painterly shots of that scale. Yeah, where you start at an intimate level and then pull back and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you get a sense of the massive scale and the scope of human <laughs> tragedy. And it's, um, you know, it's... It's good. Yeah. And those matte paintings too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There's Damn. there's beautiful matte painting. I do love the texture of it that through, again, through use of deep focus, Kubrick has extras in almost every frame just doing things to populate the background. That's one of the things that really struck me in reappraising it was just how distinctly there is always something happening in every corner of the frame. It's painterly in its way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and speaking of those crowds of extras, like I was especially struck in revisiting the, uh, that scene that that battle with the Roman army yep. and you see the, the legion, the literal legions of people and you like, you know that that's not, a Lord of the Rings CGI filled, you know, group of people. That's physical human living, breathing, pooping human beings um, put in Roman outfits and marched over this hill. And it's staggering even today, especially today. Well, and I talked a little bit about the tactile quality of so much of Paz of Glory, and Spartacus has the same thing. I mean, there's something about watching the old panorama vision movies where there were thousands of extras on set dressed to the nines 
done in full makeup for the purposes of a single shot. There is obviously a long list of reasons why Hollywood does not function in this vein anymore, but there is something genuinely grand about seeing it at the time. I mean, down to the fact that when I was researching the film, it has two release dates, one for the big U.S. release and one for its release at the Lamely Theaters in Los Angeles. I mean, this is old movie prestige. And Kubrick manages to use that visual, particularly a lot of those really stark sunset colors he likes to work in throughout the film. He loves his sunset reds and purples more than a lot of things throughout. (laughs) Well, and he and the cinematographer didn't famously didn't get along. Um, which is great because uh, Medi had a lot to say about when they were filming, uh, how frustrated he was that Kubrick only wanted to do so many setups during a day. And he's like, that's not how big grand studio filmmaking works. We're on a we're on a schedule. And uh, at one point he threatened to quit. And then Kubrick told him, you can do your you can do your job by sitting in your chair and shutting up. I'll be the director of photography. And then. Um, Medi won the, the Oscar and I love on Wikipedia it says Medi later muted his criticisms after winning the Oscar for best cinematography so I guess success is the best uh, the best equal the great equalizer here um, but yeah and it's it's a great a great lush cinematography in the classic sense uh, very Cecil B. DeMille um, in a lot of great ways and a lot of shots of a woman's boobs just gently bobbing just out of frame <laughs> just waving it's like bloop, bloop, bloop. Like, just, it's very silly. (laughs) I mean, Kubrick, so I feel like if we're going to bring it up, we might as well bring it up here. Kubrick likes to photograph bodies. And this is not the last episode of the show where we will address that. Tune in next week for much more of this. (laughs) But... I think it's worth mentioning that physicality in general, and obviously he envisions female physicality a very particular way, but in general, there is a sexuality to the phys- the way he envisions physicality in Spartacus that's kind of across the gender spectrum. Yeah, lots of glistening limbs. Um, they just, there's a lot of, it's, they're, they're not sweating, they're glowing. Yeah, yeah. Even Kirk Douglas is glowing. Well, he's got all that bronzer on. That's true. He is awash in bronzer in that movie. (laughs) He's very sparkly. He's practically rusty. Uh, No? Does that not work? mm, No. No, he's he's toasted. Oh, okay. He's he's (laughs) just like Lucky Strike. Yeah, exactly. It's toasted. Uh, Anyway, um, I don't have anything else to say about the cinematography. (laughs) I mean, I think it's, um, it's... very impressive yeah, and impressive in a way that does not particularly impact me emotionally with the exception of that battle scene. When you see these literal, as Clint puts it, literal legions of men um, preparing to march down these hills, because that's a place where scope, I think sort of hammers home the theme in a way that some of the more intimate scenes do not. Well, and I think the exact complement to that scene, which is the grisly aftermath of that same battle, also says a lot because Kubrick has never, I mean, it's one of his most disturbing singular visions to date in any of his films, which is really saying something given some of the places he'd go in the years to come. But there's something singularly unsettling about watching Kirk Douglas trudge through fields of, again, 
untold slaughtered men and women and children and really lingering on the impact of death in this film. Yeah. Because where death is often peripheral in a lot of the movies we're talking about, death is made very explicit throughout this. And it's more evidence of Kubrick's signature meticulousness because I mean, each and every one of those extras had their own number and instructions assigned to them. He positioned every single one of those bodies in a very precise way. And so he had a distinct vision for this field of carnage. Um, and it's very clear in the final product. Well, I think that the framing has a lot to do with that too, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's when we're meant to be awed by power we're often looking from below when we're meant to understand weakness or vulnerability we're looking from above um if it's something private it's often glimpsed through a window or in between column i'm thinking specifically of that bathhouse scene in -hmm. between columns or through the branches of a tree or the window of a door um and it, it's so deliberate that it's easy to sort of roll your eyes. But at the same time, none of it's lazy. And I yeah. think that's very... Like there's a reason it's done like that. And it's because it works. You know, sometimes you just need to take a camera and put it above Tony Curtis so that you remember that he's a slave. And then train it on his very bronzed, heavily eyelinered face <laughs> so that he can say... I learned them from my master, who was also taught the classics. It just never <laughs> stops being funny for me. I'm sorry. It's just, it's you couldn't get a dialect coach in there. It's like Gandolfini. Were you worried that they, it was going to ruin his branding? Like, why? Wh- why? You couldn't get him to just not do also taught the classics. Like, just a little, just ease up a little bit on the throttle. Just a little? No? <laughs> what borough of Rome is he from? I don't know. The cool one. The cool one. The cool borough. (laughs) Coolest borough of Rome. Yeah. So I think we'll be interesting for some appropriate whiplash now as we've gone from saturated black and white photography to the grandeur of Panavision back to saturated black and white photography because let's (laughs) talk about Dr. Strangelove or what happens when you shoot a comedy as a film noir. (laughs) Yes. And again, like that high contrast filmography, filmography, uh, that's the name of the podcast. Again, that high contrast photography is just, uh, it's stunning. We've already mentioned things like the, uh, like the war room and even the way it's funny because we talk about how meticulous he is with his shot placement, shot setup and the lighting and everything. But even his use of stock footage is really, really effective like especially that uh that opening scene that's basically a love scene between a bomber and a refueling plane and i don't know just for some reason it even though it was very clearly stuff that was it was not shot he did not shoot it um it's stock footage but he uses it in a very kubrickian way uh and the editing especially um, obviously helps with that and um i it, it's a testament to the melding of the cinematography and editing that it all feels like one consistent film even though it all comes from different sources Well, and I think Gilbert Taylor's work on this film is really kind of a standout just because not only does the film meld things together from so many sources, but again, to revisit our discussion in the first half, he takes the war room, which is ostensibly a simple set and gets miles of comic mileage out of it. Just the way he's able to stage people in the room, the way Taylor is able to visualize people in the room, the way Taylor uses glances from across the table to convey certain things about a character. I mean, I think of him visualizing George C. Scott from the other end of the table where he's blustering and at once he's never looked smaller (laughs) or more futile or more impotent and it's perfect. 
Yeah, yeah. And especially, and even the scenes with Jack D. Ripper and Lionel Mandrake, like even staging those relatively simple two-man kind of comedy scenes, like there's there's inventiveness there. And uh, especially like when they're glimpse, when they're glimpsing the carnage through the windows and uh, and holding up behind desks. And uh, there's, there's an intimacy to that that I think is really fascinating. Because again, we're transitioning from the the huge vistas of Spartacus and even the, the times when that you see the vast um, palatial offices and, and stuff of the officer class and the broad battlefields of paths of glory. Um, this is very intimate. This is in cramped bombers. This is in claustrophobic war rooms. This is in, you know, offices where they're hiding away. Like this is all focused on these individuals. Well, and there's a sense that pervades through the film of sweat and anxiety because that's one of the things to really note about Dr. Strangelove. It's remarkably tense. Like it's it's a comedy that moves at the cadence of a thriller and I think that's one of the really astounding things about it. And I think especially in the way that Taylor and Kubrick go on to visualize it that that close quarters tension and particularly a lot of the very Kubrickian extreme close-ups he employs throughout the film where he just allows the camera to linger on actors going wild which is something he was always exceptional at Mm -hmm. and when you get a lot of those shots you get a sense that this world is inescapable. There's something inescapable about virtually every frame of the film up to the last one where it's the truest expression of that. Yeah, very, very true. Um, yeah, and again, I just not enough good things can be said about uh, about the scenes in the bomber, especially. Like, I mean, the war room, everyone's talked about the war room, but again, like, you feel that sweat, you feel the claustrophobia. Um, the, the camera, by necessity almost, is just trained just on like James Earl Jones's cheek and you like hardly ever see like the entirety of one person's face and you feel that that submarine like claustrophobia of these people who are just locked in a tin can with nothing but these far off orders that are being transmitted to them via mysterious means that can turn off at at, at any moment for any number of reasons. I uh, I think it's worth talking about our third location, which is the base and surrounding environs with its phone booths and Coke machines and bathrooms of death and so on. Yeah. Which is, in contrast, I think, shot so mundanely. Like, I think it increases the, the surreal nature of those scenes and the conversations that happen in them because it just seems like an office. It's just an office and a bathroom and a hallway. And then you hear gunfire and these insane things are being said. And because it seems so familiar, certainly it's still high contrast, still sort of um, epic in the way that the intensity with which it's being approached. But the the actual environs are are like laughably casual yeah um and i think really, that really underlines all the the surreal nature of those scenes yeah it's really mundane it's really low-key it's almost shot like a just your everyday sitcom a little bit um and i think yeah i completely agree like having that sense of bizarre comparative normalcy in amongst the tight close-ups of the bomber and the the broad weirdness of the war room uh, allows them to visually differentiate those three storylines as well, um, but also shows the different scales at which this crisis is happening. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think something else really interesting about the film is how 
at a lot of times the men on screen are almost bathed in overwhelming light, which is really curious to me because you're lighting these men in the way you would t- traditionally light performers in a comedy where you want to make sure they're foregrounded, that their performance is the clearest thing on screen at any given time. And it's a traditional comic method, but it's men doing gallows comedy, which almost feels like its own joke in and of itself. They're lit like Laurel and Hardy to herald us the apocalypse. <laughs> it's true. Um, but another element, another visual element that I love that I don't think we'll talk about as much with the other three films because it doesn't really point go, uh, the, the title sequences. The title sequence for Dr. Strangelove in particular is just phenomenal and i think it really helps sell the tone especially given the backdrop because that's where the 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 refueling plane love scene is happening in the sweeping romantic music but the blocky um opening credit sequence all the opening titles with like the pablo ferro designed block lettering and the unconventional placement of letters and everything it, it it's so quirky and it feels like scrawled in a notebook and yet it is placed over this like portentous, um, you know, this portentous image. And I, I just I absolutely love it. And it's such a great tone setter for the rest of the movie. Absolutely. It's at once a contradiction in terms and completely online with the tone the film is setting. Mm-hmm. And speaking of contradictions in terms, that feels like a good way to get into Full Metal Jacket, which early and often makes a point of contradicting itself with its visual compositions. It has the grandeur of so many of Kubrick's ornate set pieces, but in, once again, much like Dr. Strangelove, incredibly cramped, contained quarters. I think particularly, again, in the first third of the film, of the way in which Kubrick and Douglas Milsom, the cinematographer on this film, the way the two of them visualize the Christmas in the barracks, where you have this long depth of field line of Ermi marching into the foreground as the men are pushed further and further to the background on the same track, where you fill the frame with, again, a feeling of openness in terms of what's fit into the frame, but simultaneously being extremely claustrophobic and enclosed. And this is a contradiction we'll talk about more again with The Shining, where he mines that for pure horror. But here, I mean, again, the first third especially is a horror movie in its own manner by any definition. Yeah, no, and again, the way he films those barracks is really fascinating because, like, as you said, it's a, it's a bizarre mix of feeling trapped and dwarfed in equal measure um, where at once they, this sells the enormity of this, uh, this vast, uh, this vast organization that they're joining in, in, in very dehumanizing ways where you see like the furthest soldiers at the far end of the barracks and they seem so small. And you can tell that even the people in the foreground are just one of them. And yet the doors are always closed and you, you they're all lined up in these, you know, neat little rows. And there's so much of a focus on exactitude and precision that it does feel really stifling. And somehow in the way they film those uh, scenes in the barracks, they manage to achieve both at the same time, which is miraculous, honestly. Well, and I think you get even in a lot of the scenes in the Vietnam sequence of the film, then you get that same kind of again, going back to your point about strange love, uncomfortable intimacy. Yeah. You get that sense that 
the world is overwhelming them in, at any given moment, even when it's peacetime, even when they're just sitting around shooting the shit or trying to solicit prostitutes. They're all it always feels like something is coming just around the corner. Yeah. Where if there's the slow dread to that early sequence that revs up into full blown paranoia and panic in the second half. Right. And I think here especially is where we start to get into uh, Kubrick's love of symmetry, much like the subject of the previous season of filmography, Wes Anderson. I'm positive there's got to be like an Anderson fan cut, like trailer cut of like Full Metal Jacket somewhere. If not, there should be because I think there's that should happen, especially those scenes where Arlie Ermey's just right in your face, where he's just like the, the you know, extreme close up right center of frame shouting at you from the from through the screen. And um, it those scenes in the barracks and even the scene that those crazy scenes in the head um there is this emphasis on this dehumanizing symmetry that uh really helps sell the loneliness and these the i don't know the buttoned up discipline well that's the thing in part due to filmmakers like anderson we tend to in the modern era associate precision and symmetry with a kind of twee sensibility almost an indie movie sensibility Mm -hmm. it's very compositional it's very it's very storybooky in the way it's been taken in the post 2000 era but kubrick managed to turn that same sensibility into the herald of overwhelming dread yeah and there's again it's the exact same sensibility that that army's character tries to you know instill in his men and the military sensibility of like there is no divergence there is it's always straight lines absolute discipline no deviation and any deviation is punished and i think whenever the the shots are symmetrical like that it really helps exactly the the filmmaking is rigorous and military in the same way that the on-screen action is and atop that and we made this point with Paz Gloria a little bit in the first half. This is a film where everything feels like it's bathed in dirt and sweat and filth all the time. Mm-hmm. Even the barracks are like the one island from it. And there are other terrors within. But every other sequence, whether you're in the mud or you're in the shit with them in Vietnam, you feel immersed. Because that's the thing. I feel like as much as anything, Full Metal Jacket functions more well, less as a narrative film and more as an immersion into the terrors of Vietnam in the same way that um, Apocalypse Now does, where it's less about telling a Vietnam story and more about telling a story about what it was to be in Vietnam in yeah, so many words. I absolutely agree. Before we move on from the visual, because we could sit here and talk about the visual of Kubrick all day, no questions mm-hmm. asked. I want you both to give me a lasting image that stays with you from the film. And Clint, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Um, I had quite a few in mind, but I think that there, between the four films that we've chosen, there is, for me, no image more iconic than Slim Pickens on the back of that fucking rocket, uh, riding it like a bucking bronco as it uh, goes down towards its target. Because I think it's it really encapsulates the the darkly comic spirit of that film where it, and especially the, the a very American sensibility of the film where um, we are a nation for Kubrick um, more than willing to end the universe uh, end the world as we know it out of a sense of like machismo. And, um, and again, like it's such a phallic image, it's a playful image, it's a destructive image. And I think the, the fact that it's able to be all those things at once and more is the reason why it's, lasted so long in like the collective unconscious 
I like it. Allison, what was your shot of choice? I similarly had lots and lots of options. Dr. Strangelove is one of my, I don't know if favorite films is the right word. It's not like it's a comfort food movie, but right. it's um, a movie that I cherish and really admire. Um, but in revisiting all of them this week, I was most struck by the execution shot in Paths of Glory when after that long, long march up to the firing range, we get a glimpse just maybe a second, two seconds before they all pull their triggers where we see all three men tied to the posts with their rifles looming into the shot, uh, placing us with the executioners before Again, one stays upright, one sort of falls halfway over, and one falls all the way to the ground. Yeah, that like the the rifles practically border that shot because yeah. they're coming from all directions. And yeah, yeah that was my you close second. You are definitely second. nestled in there with um, the gunman. Mm-hmm. Well, and for mine, on the same tack of personal implication, I Clint, you already bought it up, but Arlie Ermey screaming at the audience because there is something so I mean, it's not the first time that Kubrick has messed around with the fourth wall cinematically, certainly by 87, but it's one of his most striking examples of it just by dint of the fact that Ermey, again, he's a terror and especially not he's not only shot dead center, but he's sort of half bent over as though he's leaning over just for the express purpose of screaming into your face. And there's something so uniquely and primally authoritarian and frightening about that image. It's like having a join the military poster bellow at you. Yeah, It's the dark side of Uncle Sam, really. Um, it's the same position and everything. Um, yeah, no, you as an audience member, when you're watching that shot and it's unrelenting too, because he just he just shouts in your face for like probably half a minute it feels like forever and you you never feel like you never feel smaller or more more vulnerable than a when someone's yelling at you in general and b when someone who is as good at yelling at you as arlie ermy is is yelling at you and yeah it's just a perfect distillation it it puts you squarely in the the combat boots of joker and company speaking of sound and spectacle that'll find our way into our final segment of the episode talking about the scores and music of the films. Now, I don't think we're going to record an episode of Kubrick filmography that has a wider array of sounds and soundtracks than these four films. I'm just going to take a wild lunge at that one. But to jump in is the best segue to last week's episode, which is that for the last time, Kubrick would work with Gerald Freed once more on Paths of Glory. And what's curious about that is how little there is to say about it because it's the sparsest of his Kubrick scores by a country mile. It's just percussion, right? It's just military drums, basically. It's just military percussion, um, heavy on the timpani sounds, particularly in some of the more foreboding sequences. But yes, it's remarkably stripped down. Mm -hmm. And again, like that sort of um, military, that military drum sort of rump to tum tum uh, attitude permeates it in a way that, you know, it's it's never a very bass heavy score. So like, uh, you know, the drums always feel really small and tinny and it feels performative, like a performance of this military decorum that uh, that lands these people in this situation. Well, then what's interesting is we'll see far starker examples of this as his career goes on from this point, really. But a lot of his films, he likes to play with that dramatic irony within music in that manner where there's 
there's a military bombast to the sound of the film that's at odds with the contradiction of the generally anti-war sentiments of the future. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, there's not really much to say besides that for paths of glory other than like i mean the score is just perfectly suited it's not like something you listen to on your own but it's perfectly suited to the film at hand absolutely and and again the fact that it's not recurrent the fact that this is the first time and really one of the only kubrick movies i can think of where silence is used in this way where there's a lack of diegetic music often a lack of even on-screen sound and the film will play around with that to really draw some of its points out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it does a lot with waiting. And when you when you are waiting uh, and you're dreading something in particular, it's it's not as though particularly people in this situation would have much to do to distract themselves. And silence can be oppressive in a situation like that. Indeed. And if we're going to talk about sound, again, the contradictions of these films will never be richer than when we put some of the technical methods side by side, (laughs) because we're going to go now from a generally sparse soundscape to Spartacus (laughs) in which. Sorry, Dom, I can't hear you over Alex North's music. (laughs) Yes. It's bombastic as AAF. Yes, the Spartacus score is omnipresent over the film's three-plus hours, and it's North working in in an extremely traditional mode. And I think the thing that most piqued my curiosity about it was something that Allison pointed out to me when we were watching it together about just how Western influence that North's work is on this. Yeah, rawhide, Mm. man. It's um particularly and it's particularly notable whenever there are a bunch of dudes on horseback, which <laughs> happens a lot. And often they're riding on horseback in front of like a purpling sky and a vast rocky vista. Um, and so then, you know, it, it seems particularly pointed, but it really in the I guess that sort of second act second and third act of the film mm-hmm. um feels like a western like a band of outlaws on the road mm-hmm. it's very strange cool but strange yeah and yet there's a lot of uh eastern instruments and a lot of older instruments mm-hmm. used i mean like mandolins lutes there's an israeli yeah. recorder i mean these are lush orchestrations i mean if yeah. we're talking old hollywood here we are talking the height of the powers we are talking hundreds of people in an orchestra recording yeah. at and again this is time. one of those movies that had an overture and an intermission so you had those big bold brassy things to like herald the movie and that's the thing there's these soaring violin sounds it's that's the thing soaring choruses of strings sounds like a good way to surmise or summarize yeah. the Spartacus score at large because again North's work which for all the Oscars the film won somehow this didn't which surprises me that it didn't win on sheer volume Malone. Yeah. But the Academy Award for most music goes to. <laughs> well, I and I think like again, we're not trying to bag on the score here necessarily because North is working once again and much like Kubrick on the film in an extremely traditional mode. This is grandiose epic and as such the music f- is in keeping with that very, very much so. And then by contrast, if we're going to bookend Spartacus and we're going to talk about Norse lush orchestrations, then we have Laurie Taylor's submissions to Dr. Strangelove, which return us to a much, much sparser kind of soundscape. 
Yes. And also this is going to be the first of at least two movies that where we feature like source music as well. Cause I think that's, that's also very important talking about this. I mean, this movie Dr. Strangelove has like one of the best ironic uses, ironic needle drops in cinema history. And maybe, maybe the most defining because Vera Lynn's rendition of will meet again, playing over images of mushroom clouds yep. is singularly haunting. Like very few other images that Kubrick ever mustered, even at the, height of his powers there is something so uniquely ominous and fatalistic really about that imagery because especially against some of the goofy military marches played aboard the bomber earlier in the film or alongside the scenes of the bomber rather where kubrick is clearly drawing an ironic counterpoint there's something lilting and lovely about that particular cover of we'll meet again that is simultaneously one of the grimmest things I've ever watched in in a, in a film, yeah. period. Because, it, I mean, it's... It, and the thing is, ironic 50s music over the apocalypse is an aesthetic now. Yeah. The Fallout games have made a multi-million dollar series out of this exact flourish. Yeah. And yet, when Dr. Strangelove came out, it was this haunting image of the world gone to soil. Yeah. And I mean, there's nothing really quite like it, I think. Well, I mean, it was it was a it was a pioneering moment, really, in uh, in soundtrack use. If we're going to talk about uh, needle drops in wartime, we can't not talk about the Vietnam movie in this roster. And I feel like the Vietnam movie as a subgenre is a great case study for like soundtrack cultivation, especially 70s pop hits and ironic needle drops. Especially sitting here in 2018, we're at a point where the needle drops of 80s and even late 70s Vietnam films have become the ironic cues of today that we most associate with Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about um, Kong Skull Island from last year for just one example, Kong is full of Creedence Clearwater Revival and the kinds of songs that we culturally associate with Vietnam, which is why I think Full Metal Jacket is so interesting from a sonic standpoint, just in as much as it's one of Kubrick's films that managed to influence the broader lexicon in terms of the music played and how people came to associate it with Vietnam. I mean, for instance, the needle drop over the end credits of the Rolling Stones paint it black. I immediately associate with this movie to this day. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's not like the movie begins with a particularly subtle needle drop. Like we see that montage of all the new recruits getting their hair buzzed to the uh, dulcet tones of Johnny Wright singing, hello, Vietnam. I wonder what this movie's about. Um, But, and then there's other great, uh, there's other great needle drops too. Like uh, these boots are made for walking. That one is, I don't know if that one or Chapel of Love is weirder, but they're both pretty weird. Yeah. And I love that they're willing to go there. I love that they're willing to get weird like that. And um, I think surf and bird might be the weirdest one for me. Uh, Well, that's just such a strange song to begin with. Indeed. Indeed. But the fact, fact that they really, the the choice to include it yeah. is takes just such brass balls that i think i actually think early army would be proud of the the, the <laughs> sheer um, like size of balls it would take to like put surf and bird in a vietnam war movie well and as the then build abigail mead who would become vivian kubrick um a lot Sensing of it, a, theme. a lot of it sounds like pop music 
as the harbingers of hell, which is something I really love about it. It's a series of deliberately ironic pop tunes. And look, it's very much Kubrick working in the same mode that he did with Clockwork Orange. So there was some precedent by this point in his career for these sounds. And even The Shining invokes one or two early in the going. But I feel like this is maybe his starkest usage of established music for the sake of dramatic heft. And again, to come back to something we mentioned right near the beginning of the show, the climactic march to the Mickey Mouse Club theme is one of the more horrifying cinematic images of war that's ever been committed to camera, specifically because it's so uniquely surreal. I mean, again, Allison, you kind of alluded to the bizarre nature of some of the other music cues in the film, but that's by far the most. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, because, I mean, they are still sort of a Mickey Mouse club in a really, really dark, weird way. And, uh, yeah, I mean... That, along with the other needle drops, you know, perform that same great purpose that a lot of needle that a lot of like ironic soundtrack uses. They take these things outside of this horrifying context and place them in and thereby recontextualize it. And I don't know, it's the this particular era is chock full of that, especially Vietnam yeah. movies. Well, and I think in general, it's part of a tradition that's become tradition, partly defined by Kubrick again, mm-hmm. where Vietnam is cast as the pop culture war. It's the war that was happening during the era where pop cultural rose pop culture rose to prominence as a cultural force. Right. And a lot of these songs came from the counterculture too. So to see them sort of reappropriated in that way is especially disconcerting, especially in a filmic context like this. Um, I do want to point out that uh, not just source music was used for this. Well, I guess it doesn't appear in the film, but to promote the film, a single called Full Metal Jacket, I Want to Be Your Drill Instructor, was released to promote the film that like sampled Arlie Ermey's drill instructor oh, stuff. God. Um, oh, the God. single reached number two in the UK pop charts. Oh, God. So there's that. Honestly... I had another end in mind for this episode, but I don't know where else to send us out. That is so uniquely frightening and so oddly Kubrickian in its way, in its sheer baffling surrealism. I don't know where else to go from here. So accordingly, I don't think that we will. Um, I just... Before I bring us home, I want to thank Allison and Clint again so much for joining me this week. I want to thank Kat Blackard and Michael Rothman for all the Consequence Podcast Network support and for helping to continue to support this show. We'll see you next week on June 28th for Episode 3, where we'll be talking the sexier end of Kubrick. Mm -hmm. And anyway, you can find Filmography again on Facebook at Filmography of Filmmakers Podcast. You can find Consequence of Sound on Twitter at Consequence. You can find me on Twitter at D. Suzanne Mayer, and you can also find all of my other written and otherwise material on consequenceofsound.net. Allison, where can the goodly people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Allison Shue. You can also, I don't know if we mentioned this at the top. I think it might have come up once or twice. Uh, Clint and I host a podcast for <laughs> the Consequence Podcast Network called TV Party. Uh, our most recent episode centers on the most valuable players of the Ryan Murphy universe. We will also be talking about Legion and Westworld and some other delightful things in the next month or so uh and uh, other shit you can read my stuff at consequenceofsound.net as well as at rogerebert.com theavclub.com and some other fine websites 
You can find me on Twitter at AlkaHollywood and as the editor for the film website and podcast AlkaHollywood, which you can find at AlkaHollywood.com. You can find my film writing there and at Consequence of Sound, where I am a senior film and TV writer. Uh, you can also find me as the co-host of Nathan Rabin's Happy Cast, which you can find at NathanRabin.com. I feel bad that we're like focusing so much on TV Party. We should mention some of the other shows too, yeah? No, I'm fine with it. Okay, well, I'm going to do it anyway. You oh, can join okay. me or not join me, you son of a bitch. Oh, uh, you can check out This Must Be the Gig, the Consequence interview series podcast from Leo. Or Phillips, where she recently talked to David Byrne and has also talked to some other delightful people. Uh, you can also check out the Losers Club, the the seminal Consequence podcast. <laughs> um, yes, uh, we're talking about all things Stephen King. You can also check out Halloweenies. That one is focused on Halloween, not the holiday, the film series. And you can also check out State of the Empire, Cat Blackard's uh, brilliant podcast on all things Star Wars. Thank you again for you two to joining me. Thank you for all of you for listening. You can once again find us on Twitter at Consequence and on Facebook at Filmography, a filmmaker's podcast. You can leave us a review on iTunes and or Podchaser or wherever you find your finer podcasts. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast content over at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. And thank you all for listening once more. We'll see you next week.